Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, the third chapter. And we'll begin our studies with verse 1, the third chapter of Romans. Now, in order to get the connection, we must remember what is given us in the first two chapters. First of all, if you remember the first chapter, we're told of the heathen, more or less, and of the terrible sins of all humanity that uh, had so had come to the place that they had so dishonored God that uh, God finally had to give many of them up to a reprobate mind. And uh, we find the terrible indictments, 23 indictments in the first chapter against the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, we open the chapter with, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. And though the Jews are not named directly, they're included and they're uh, spoken of in certain language here in the second chapter that shows that they are under the same indictments that uh, the heathen and the Gentile were in the first chapter. And now then we come to the third chapter and we find that the Jew begins to question in his mind and heart. He says, well, then what advantage then hath the Jew? In other words, if we're just as bad as the Gentiles... If we're just as sinful, and God has made both Jews and Gentiles sinful, and has condemned all of having sinned against God, then what advantage hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? So this is the question that comes up in this third chapter. And it says in verse uh, 2, Much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. In the first place, they do have some advantage. They do have much advantage. First of all, because the oracles of God. This refers to all of the revelation of God, uh, both under the law, the commandments, and the prophets, the revelation of God and God's communication with Israel, all through the Old Testament. It was committed unto them, the oracles of God. So they at least have this particular advantage, that God personally and individually spoke to many of them, and God revealed His will to them, and God gave them the law and the prophets, and it was committed unto them, the oracles of God. And all the blessings that came upon the Gentiles in the Old Testament was strictly through that Jewish nation, and through the fact that God had committed unto the Jews, the oracles of God. Now then, we're going to read several verses of Scripture because we have many questions that unless we get the sense of the whole context here, we'll have a hard time trying to answer each question individually because it seems like one ties right into the next and that you have to understand the whole of this argument before you get the real meaning of it. So we'll begin reading with verse 3 and read down... Uh, through verse uh, 9. So let's look at it. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, What shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. 
For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I, uh, am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now, we need to, having read that, we need to go back and kind of bring out some of the questions that are asked. Verse, verse 3 says, For what if some did not believe? Some of the Jews did not believe. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now, what we're talking about here, the faith of God is, is His Word, the teaching. Not, not that God has to have faith, but the faith of God as it's revealed. The revealed Word and the revealed will of God. Does that make His Word without effect because some of the Jews did not believe it? It goes on to say, uh, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. There are many that have broken the word of God and have not uh, obeyed the word of God and have not believed the word of God. And they are found to be, of course, uh, liars and they're found to be under condemnation and they deserve God's just judgment. Even though they had the oracles of God, they had broken the law the same as the Gentiles were so sinful in the sight of God. And now if you'll notice, it says, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. This is a portion of the scripture that uh, David spoke after he had sinned terribly in the sight of God. He said uh, in the 51st Psalm, if you'll go back and think back upon that repentant Psalm of David, after he had sinned terribly, he said uh, that uh, he was a sinner. He said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. He says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. In other words, David was as much as saying that though God's word is very plain about sin, I know that I have broken God's law. I have committed sin in the sight of God. And when God condemns me, he is justified in doing so. And that's the argument that is given here against the, the Jew in general, the, the, all of the people, that the ones that had sinned, they deserved the just judgment of God. So they wouldn't make the faith of God without effect, verse 3, just because that... Uh, they did not believe, and because they had sinned, they didn't do anything. God's standard was still where it should be, wasn't it? And their, their uh, judgment that they received was just in that they had sinned against the faith of God and, and God's Word. So it's rather hard to understand, but you've got to get the sense and meaning of this whole passage. Now, verse 5 says, now we know, that verse 4, before we leave it, that God is just in condemning the sinner then, isn't he? When we have sinned, uh, just as David said, thou art justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest, because he, the verse before, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He accepted the fact that God was just in judging his sin. Now then here, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, 
What shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God uh, judge the world? In other words, if God were unrighteous, he wouldn't be able to judge the world, would he? And how is it that our unrighteousness would commend the righteousness of God? How is it that a man's sin, how is it that a man breaking the law would commend the righteousness or the law of God, the justice of God? Well, it's just as if you had in the community here, we know that uh, when a man is a robber or a thief, if he goes in uh, and the law catches him and punishes him for that, then uh, the, the law is plainly broken, and so that the law is right in judging or condemning that man that has broken it. And so the unrighteousness, or let's put it this way, the thievery and robbery of that man commends the law. It commends it in the sense that you see why it was given and that, that that's the reason he has to be punished for breaking that law. If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, you see, when we've sinned, God is just in condemning us. And so we get the, the drift of the message here that, that God is certainly righteous in uh, judging our sin, but at the same time our sin seems to commend the fact that God is righteous and that His judgment is just in being poured out upon us. And it's is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Certainly he's not. He's not unrighteous in doing that. He should take vengeance, right? He should uh, bring judgment upon us. Because he is the just God. And that's why he says in verse 6, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? If God were an unrighteous judge, certainly he could not judge the world, let alone judge you and I individually as we have sinned against God. Now then, in verse 7, <clears throat> You see, much the same thing is being answered all the way through. The fact that man has sinned against God's law and against God, and God has to judge him because of this. And it seems that the Jew was wanting a special privilege because unto him had been committed the oracles of God, and he thought he must have some advantage. But if he breaks the law, he's still due the, the uh, judgment of God, isn't he? Just as the Gentiles were. And uh, we're going to find out that God has not only brought the Gentiles under condemnation, but the Jews as well because of sin. In fact, that's the last part of the verse that we read in verse 9, wasn't it? He's concluded all under sin, both Jews and Gentiles. And he's showing here that God is just in judging man's sin, whether it be Jew or Gentile. Look in verse 6 again. God forbid, uh, for then how shall God judge the world? Verse 7, for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Now, how is it that the truth of God would more abound through man's lie or through man's unbelief or through man's sin when he is judged? Just as we've explained previously, that when, the, when a man breaks the law, then if we didn't ever have anyone to break a certain law of the community or of the state or the nation, it would not magnify the fact that that law was just in condemning the one that breaks it. So, it says, If the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie. Can you see how that 
when a person is judged for his wrongdoing, that it abounds the truth of that particular law, or the truth of God in this case. It's more abound when we see men have sinned terribly in the sight of God, and God in turn says, you have broken my law, and he judges man's sin, then the truth of God more abounds through our committing that sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we should commit sin in order that the truth of God abound, you see. That's the argument. We should certainly not do that. We're not justified in committing sin just in order to show that God's law is, is right in condemning our sin. We're not to do that. And the next verse explains that. It says in verse 8, And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. In other words, if it's good for God to judge sin, then we ought to do more evil so God can judge more sin. No, that's not the argument. That's not the way it should be done. We know, it says, uh, uh, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. In other words, it, it wouldn't do us any good to just co- constantly and continually, Jew or Gentile, to break the law of God in order to see God's judgment executed uh, upon those who break God's law. In other words, to do evil that good may come. We know it's good for God to judge sin, but we're not to deliberately do evil in order that God would have to do such and judge sin. You see, that's what, if we could put this in, I would say, Baptist terms today, some people would put it this way. Well, you Baptists believe you're you're saved, eternally saved, and therefore you can go out and live like the devil and get by with it. That's kind of what it's saying here. Do we think that just because we're saved by the grace of God that we're to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness? Paul says it's not so. And he says some people take advantage of salvation by grace. And they try to think because they're saved by grace. In other words, uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says in another place. God forbid. Certainly we shall not sin that grace may abound. And yet we know that we are under grace. But being under grace doesn't give us the right to sin against grace, does it? And it's slanderously reported, and some may affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. In other words, it doesn't make any difference how we live. It's going to all turn out for good because we have everlasting life by the grace of God anyway. And God will uh, take care of us regardless of how sinful we are. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the way the Bible teaches a Christian should live. Paul tells us in the book of Titus, he says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So the grace of God that brings salvation teaches you to live a godly life. And if you're a Baptist... And being accused of, of hiding behind the fact that you're saved by grace and eternally secure, and accused of being uh, one that would willfully and deliberately despise that grace of God and sin against it, that's not what the Bible teaches. And certainly, if you're a real, genuine, Bible-believing Baptist, you know that that's not true, and yet people accuse you of it. How many times have you ever heard that 
people say, well, if I believe what you Baptists believe, I just live any way I want to. The trouble is, you don't have the, the want to live any other way than live for the Lord if you're a true born-again believer. That's the whole thing. You have to go back where, uh, if you really have the Lord, and if you're a true child of God, a born-again Christian, you don't want to live any way that is pleasing to the flesh or the world or the devil. You may at some times stump your toe or, or uh, get off on the wrong track and do something wrong. Uh, the, the world may get the advantage of you with its temptations and allurements. The devil may trap you up sometimes and get you in his trap. And even the flesh may at some times get the upper hand. But it's not because you deliberately as a child of God want to do the will of the world and the flesh and the devil. It's because you have been tempted or caught off guard and, you're, and you have uh, realized that human weakness and frailness that without the Lord we cannot uh, hold up under our own strength. So that's what it's talking about. Let's look at verse uh, 9. What then? Are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved Jews, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. In other words, the Jews were not any better off than the Gentiles, and neither were the Gentiles any better off than the Jews. Even though the Jews had some advantage in having received the law and the oracles of God, and to them was given all of these things, yet when they sinned, they were just as guilty as the Gentile that sinned. <clears throat> and in the second chapter, we have already taught how that though the Jews had the written law of God, from Mount Sinai, yet all of the world, both Jews and Gentiles, have God's law written upon their hearts so that they have upon their conscience the fact that they are sinning against God when they sin. So there's the inward law written upon man's heart. And we use the heathen, for example, in our last lesson, showing that they know when they sin against God. Now then, we know more of what it is to sin against God, as we have God's Word revealed against sin, don't we? But we do have an inward consciousness of it, even without the Word and without any enlightenment other than that which God has given man by nature. But that which He's given him by nature is enough to convict him that he has sinned against God. And that's why Paul says in the first chapter, so then they are without excuse. And now he concludes, even though the Jews have the law of God, that they are still under under condemnation if they have broken the law, that all are under sin. Now, let's look at it in verse 10. As it is written. Now, we're going to find the indictments here pointed out again against Jews and Gentiles, that there is no difference, that all humanity by nature have these terrible things, and we might say we don't have them, but if we don't now, we did have at one time or another before we were justified by faith in Christ and before we received a divine nature, we did have them. Let's look at them. This is what God sees in humanity, and this is what is in truth in humanity. And yet we don't want to admit it. Look at it, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now that means every one of us. That means Jews and Gentiles. That means every individual person upon the face of this earth. That there is none righteous. No, not one. No man can stand up before God and say, I am righteous. 
I am completely right. I am without sin. I do no wrong. No one can do that. Jesus could. Jesus is the only person that was completely, totally sinless and completely holy and righteous in the sight of God. But all of uh, the rest of humanity, that's why God has concluded all under sin. That there, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says in the Old Testament, there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Well, if there's not a just man, then what about the, the sinners? If there's not a just man that does good and sins not, what about the most wicked and, and sinful of men? Certainly they cannot do good and not sin. But the fact remains that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Look at verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Man is without spiritual understanding. Man does not of himself seek God. He has to have the divine intervention to cause him to, to even want the Lord in the first place. He doesn't want God. He wants to run away and hide like Adam in the garden. He wants to get as far away from the Lord as he can. He doesn't understand that he is in darkness. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seek God, seek after God. Actually, as we read these verses, there are quotations from at least six different places in the Old Testament that are brought over into the New that show us. They're, they're quoting uh, from the Old Testament these things that show. Paul's giving us these under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show how sinful man really is, both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. We're not in God's way. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. He's gone out of the way. He's gone astray and away from God. Verse uh, 12 again. They are together become unprofitable. There's nothing good about man. There's nothing profitable. There's nothing fruitful about him without the Lord. There is none that doeth good. It's said again, no, not one. It says there's none righteous, no, not one in verse 10. Here it says there's none that doeth good. No, not one. You see, man in his natural condition is a terrible, uh, depraved creature, isn't he? He's in an awful mess. And yet you find people that claim to, that uh, man has a spark of good in him, you know, and that if he'll just kind of wave or fan that little spark, it'll turn into a flame and he'll turn out just perfectly all right because he has enough good in him to, to finally kindle the fire of goodness. No, the Bible says that man is a sinner. And the Bible says you must be born again. And the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And the Bible teaches that unless we're born again, we cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So there's the answer to that. <clears throat> now then, if you'll look in verse 13, their throat is an open sepulchre. In other words, what comes out and through that throat is just as if you were to be standing before uh, an open grave with all the, the smell of that grave coming out. That's how man is pictured. That nothing but bad comes through us and out of our hearts. You know, Jesus said, Out of the heart of man proceedeth forth evil thoughts. And not only do we find it out of our inmost being, but our throat is an open sepulchre. It's like an open grave. 
It says, with their tongues they have used deceit. Tongues that are supposed to be used for blessing and for doing good, saying good things. We've used deceit. And then it says, the poison of asps is under their lips. Just as if we had a, a, a serpent that was poisoned. And as we speak, a lot of times that tongue would give forth the venom or poison of that asp or serpent. And that's how man is pictured here. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. James tells us a lot about that, doesn't he? In the book of James, tells us that that tongue and that mouth needs to be controlled because it speaks for this. He says it's set on the fires of hell. And he says out of the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. And he says, brethren, these things ought not to be. You know why they ought not to be? Because after we have a new nature, we should not let this old natural condition exist. Even though we're all under sin, this is a description of our previous condition. It's not a description of what we are by the grace of God, is it? It's a description of what man is by nature, his sinfulness. So, it says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. and says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. <clears throat> One line upon another, describing man in his natural state and condition. In verse 18, there is no fear of God before thy eyes. Remember we studied the 73rd Psalm, I believe it is, and it tells us, of uh, the psalmist saying, My feet were on slippery ground when I saw the prosperity of the wicked and how that they lifted up their voice against the heavens and how that they cursed God. And it says there was no fear of God before their eyes. And that's exactly how man is. He just thinks that he's his own God. He can get along without God. In his natural state, he makes his own God. Now then, in verse 19, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Now, the, the mouths of the Gentiles had already been stopped. Now then, this stops the mouths of the Jews who uh, were under the law. And it says that both Gentiles and Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what he's saying. He's saying that all of this world, every person in it, regardless of nationality, regardless of race, regardless even of the advantage of the Jews that had uh, been given the oracles of God, <clears throat> if they broke the law of God, then every mouth, it saith to them that are under the law, every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Actually, what it means is subject to the judgment of God. Whether the Gentile had sinned without the written law or the Jew had sinned within the law, they were guilty and subject to the judgment of God because of these things. And then Paul concludes. I like this word, therefore, verse 20. He says, therefore. Now, he's proved something, hasn't he? He's proved that the Jews had the law. He's proved that God was just in judging their sins. He's proved that not only Jews but Gentiles and that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As he said previous, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or it says later, really. 
but he had already said it in so many words previous. In verse 23, he says, For all have sinned come short of the glory of God. But what he's saying is that knowing all of this, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, what he's saying by the works of the law, by trying to keep the law, even the Gentile, even the Jews could not be justified in the sight of God. Though they tried to observe it, though they tried to justify themselves by strictly observing the law of God, that wouldn't justify them in his sight, in the sight of God. Now, they tried to justify themselves with one another, didn't they? And in each other's sight, but it would not justify them before a holy God. So then why the law? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. God gave them the law to show that men are sinful. He had already shown the Gentiles they were sinful by the law written upon their hearts. And then he clenches it down, and when he gives the Jews the law, the written law, he shows that they're sinful by a written covenant of works. And they had failed in that covenant. They had broken the law of God. Jesus said they had received the law and they had not kept it. He says, you haven't kept the law. And Stephen said, you received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And they stoned him to death. And you see, actually, what it amounts to is that no one has kept it except Jesus. And Jesus came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Why didn't he destroy it? Because it would still show we were under condemnation and needed him to fulfill it for us, and therefore we could be justified by faith in him instead of trying to be justified by the works of the law. And that's why Jesus fulfilled it and did not destroy it. And he did fulfill it in every aspect and completely and totally to the satisfaction of God the Father so that there is nothing that is left undone as far as the righteousness of of the law is concerned, nothing left undone in what Jesus has done. He has perfectly and completely fulfilled the law of God. And therefore, when you and I trust him and believe on him, we haven't kept it personally and individually but we have kept it perfectly in Christ. And therefore, he gives us his righteousness. And and he says what he's really saying to you and I, if we believed on him who took our place, not only as a substitute for sinners, but in meeting the just demands of God and fulfilling the law, he's saying, I've not only died for your sins, but I've made you just in the sight of God and I've given you my righteousness. That's what he's done. Because I've obtained it and I'm going to substitute my righteousness to you the same as I also also became your sin bearer and bore your sins. The penalty and judgment do your sins. Two things that we need to see, and we'll see them in this chapter, that our sins are forgiven. That would be one thing, wouldn't it? But that we're also declared to be righteous. Now then, say for instance, and I may be getting a little ahead of myself, I trust not, but if we are, well, it won't hurt you to hear, hear it again when we come to that place. But let me at least illustrate it. That if you were over here and condemned of a crime in the court, and you had committed a murder, and you were found guilty of committing a murder, and yet later on you were pardoned for committing a terrible crime like that, and men are, they're put on parole, 
and they're turned loose. Okay, it would be one thing for you to be turned back out on society, wouldn't it? But you would still be the one that had committed that terrible crime, and you would still be a, a, a murderer in the sight of the general public. But God has said he's not only forgiven of our sins, he's not only pardoned us, but when he set us free and put us back out and given us our freedom, he declared us to be not as we were, but completely cleansed. We don't have that guilt on us anymore. We're not a murderer anymore. He's not only taken away what we're guilty of, but he's given us something in his place in addition to claim that we are completely righteous. Now, we couldn't do that on the human level, could we? If a man had committed uh, a sin like that or a crime like that, he might be turned back out, but we'd still know him to be a murderer and one of having committed such a terrible crime, even though he's turned back out and pardoned. Or forgiven, if you want to call it that. We'd still see him in the light that he was. We'd say, that man, he's been, they've had mercy on him. They've turned him loose here. And uh, probably it wasn't very wise. But at any rate, they did pardon him. But God's word teaches that God has not only forgiven us, but he's declared us to be righteous. And that we've actually kept all the law through Christ. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God that's in Christ has been witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. The no difference is between the Jew and the Gentile. We're all the same. But God's righteousness is given to all that believe. So he's not only forgiven us of our sins, but he's declared us to be righteous through Christ. That's what we've been saying all along. And it's available for all, and it's upon all them that believe. And whether they're Jews or Gentiles, for there is no difference. Verse 23, there's no difference in our sinfulness, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If there's no difference in us being sinners... Then when we're declared to be righteous, there's no difference in the degree of righteousness, is there? In verse 24, here's how we receive it. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have redemption through Christ's blood. In other words, He paid a ransom price for us. He bought us back. The word redemption is a threefold thought. He has ransomed us by payment. First of all, he paid the price for us. And then he delivered us from our sins. So this is experimental redemption. This is where he's not only redeemed us, but he's caused us to experience redemption by faith in Christ. And then another thought about redemption is that that actually it is a completed legal transaction to the extent that it will never come up again. He has redeemed us. One word is that he has bought out the market. We speak of redeeming something that's in the pawn shop. You go put something in the pawn shop, you go back and you take the money and you redeem it. And you take it out. I hope we don't have to do that too often. But anyway, the example serves. So if you do that, you have 
paid the price for that and you bought it back and, and so uh, it's yours again. But you could take that same item and put it back in the shop again and still have to go back and redeem it again. Not so with a believer. He's redeemed by the blood of Christ and the purchase price has been paid and he's never to be exposed again to sale anymore so that it will never come up as far as our salvation is concerned. It's a completed transaction and it, you're never will, you never will be exposed to sale again. You're already redeemed once and for all. And the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's hurry on. Our time is getting away. I want you to look at this in verse 25. Whom God has set forth, Christ is uh, set forth by God. God has set Christ forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood. The propitiation means the mercy seat. And that means that the blood has been sprinkled in the mercy seat in heaven. And the propitiation has been made by the blood. Just as in the Old Testament, the priest would come in uh, on the Day of Atonement and he would make atonement for all the sins of the children of Israel. He would sprinkle the blood of atonement upon the mercy seat before the cherubims that overshadowed the mercy seat. And therefore, he would roll away the sins of the children of Israel for a year at a time. And they found that their sins were forgiven by the value of that atoning blood, and they were rolled away. Now, really, it all pointed to the blood of Christ that would finally completely uh, pay for their sins. It was really symbolical of the fact that one day that the blood that they were uh, using in type and shadow would, would actually be shed by Jesus Christ that would accomplish the forgiveness for them for their past sins. And that's what it means through the for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Look at it. It says to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. All of the sins of the Old Testament found that in Christ's propitiation that they were taken care of by Christ's blood. Now, to them it was future. To us it's in the past, isn't it? The Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ coming in and the promised uh, sacrifice of Christ, as Isaiah said in the 53rd chapter of Christ and his death on the cross. We look back to the same sacrifice, but the forgiveness of sins is accomplished through his sacrifice. And in order that verse 26 says, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's look at that. What is it? God is just in justifying the one that believes in Jesus. Now then, this means that God does not simply pass by our sins and say, I'm not going to even look at them and, and uh, I'll just overlook their sins. That's not the mercy and justice of God. God looks upon us as sinners, but he also looks upon the blood that was shed to atone for our sins, and he's just in forgiving our sins because he has found justice in Christ. You see, the, the sins have been paid for. If our sins had not been paid for by the blood of Christ, if Jesus had not shed his blood to, to forgive us of our sins, then God would not be just in just passing by. His justice would be sacrificed, his holiness. Because God, who is just himself and is pure, 
he could not just overlook sin and never punish it, but he found punishment for our sins. <coughs> and he did that in Christ. Therefore, he is just, and he is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He justifies us because we believe in Christ. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. A man cannot boast then by keeping the law and saying, well, I'm justified by the law. But it says, by what law is this boasting excluded? It's by the law of faith. Because by the law of faith we see that a man cannot be justified by his own doings, his own works, or keeping the Ten Commandments, or or doing the best he can, or living a good life the best he can, he has to be justified by faith in Christ, because he's a sinner. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He's just in the sight of God, by faith, by faith in Christ, who has uh, paid for our sins, and who has met the justice of God, and the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God, and therefore we're justified by faith in him without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do then we make, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. What Paul is saying here, we establish the law in the sense we admit we have broken it. And we cannot make void the law of God, though we're justified by faith. We establish the fact that the only way we can be justified from the condemnation of the law is by faith in Christ. We establish that the law has condemned us, and we need the faith of Christ to justify us. Let us stand together for a word of prayer.